Welcome to A Rock and a Hard Place, the podcast that explores why minerals matter, their importance to society, and the role they will play in the low-carbon future. I'm your host, Thomas Hale, a graduate student exploring the mineral security nexus at the University of Delaware in the Minerals, Materials, and Society program. Join me as I speak with leading experts in the field of critical minerals to discuss some of the most pressing challenges facing society and learn more about their experience working in this emerging space. Enjoy the episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of A Rock and a Hard Place. I'm your host, Thomas Hale. This week, I'm joined by Courtney Onstead, a PhD candidate at Simon Fraser University in Vancouver, Canada, studying geoscience communication. Her research focuses on how science communication theory can inform geoscience communication practice, particularly in informal educational settings. She completed her master's on an orogenic gold deposit at the University of Saskatchewan in 2021 and her bachelor's in geological sciences in 2018. During her undergraduate career, she completed two undergraduate honors projects studying lithium bearing pegmatites and uranium. Courtney has worked on exploration programs in the Athabasca Basin and the Meliadine Gold District. Throughout her academic endeavors, she has interned with mineral literacy organizations, including Mining Matters and Minerals Ed. Volunteering has always been a strong passion of Courtney's, and she has sat on many executive committees, such as the Alberta Women's Science Network, and is currently the Communications Director of the Canadian Federation of Earth Sciences. Well, thanks, Courtney, for coming on the podcast. I'm looking forward to our conversation. I'd like to start out learning a little bit more about you and the journey which led you into geoscience communication and discussing the importance of minerals in our society. So what got you passionate about minerals and geology? How did that land you to your current position and your current academic degree? Yeah, so for me, it started when I was a little bit younger. So I'm not sure if you're familiar with the movie Dante's Peak. It was a a movie with a a volcano in it. And I remember when I first watched it, it was the sheer unpredictability and power of the volcano that really got me into it. So that was where like my first interest kind of got sparked. And then similar to a lot of people who are now geoscientists, I was one of the lucky few who had earth science and geoscience that was taught at my high school. So I took both of those courses. But Reflecting back on it, I think it was also the teacher that I had, Mr. Milros. And one of the things really well known in the science communication space is how humor can be used as a tactic for effective science communication. And I think that was him to a T. Basically, I could just sit in that class. You know, I, I didn't have to take notes or anything like that. You could sit there and kind of listen to what he was saying as it was like a story. So that was where I kind of figured that, okay, there's something about this that's really captivating me. He used the very tactile nature of geoscience that we're all quite familiar with. So, you know, we did a ton of hands-on activities all throughout So he used all these really captivating pedagogies in the formal education space really well. And I think that's what what really got me interested. So after that, I decided to go straight into my undergrad in geology at the University of Saskatchewan. And so again, I took all the regular courses there. But really, it wasn't till my third year which is when we have a mineral deposits course. And in this course, we have a special project where basically we're a fake exploration company and we basically get a budget to start looking for some mineral anywhere in the world. And so my group, we decided to do 
diamonds in Saskatchewan. So it was a really interesting project and it really got me interested on the mineral exploration side of things. So then from there, in my fourth and fifth years of my undergrad, I decided to do what we call here in Canada, undergrad honors theses. So one of them was on the host rock, a high-grade uranium deposit in the Athabasca Basin in Saskatchewan. So basically, I was just characterizing the geochemistry and the petrography of these host rocks. And then I loved the research component of that project so much that I decided to do a second one. And the second one was on these lithium-bearing pegmatite boulders that had been found in northern Saskatchewan. Again, that was a really interesting project for me. And I loved being able to explore these things at depth, which really only research allows you to do. In the summers, I also did work in the industry. So I worked at a uranium deposit as well as on a gold project in Nunavut. But again, I loved research. So I went back to do my master's. And that master's was on the geochemistry of an orogenic gold deposit. But I guess what I found closer to getting time to graduate is that I just, there was something missing. It just, it didn't feel like what I was doing was enough anymore. And I found myself constantly thinking back to grade 11 and 12 and how captivated I was by geoscience in the first place. And it kind of made me think, well, maybe there was something, you know, about this informal education or even just the education side of things that I really enjoyed. So during my master's, I started an outreach program at my university. So basically, this was a program where we had grade, honestly, kindergarten all the way up to grade 12 students who would come in from the Saskatoon area to the university. And we offered about four different workshops that they could do, some on just basic minerals and rocks. We had fossils, we had meteorite impacts, volcanoes. And then we had student volunteers, undergraduate volunteers, who would volunteer for this. And it was great. And they loved it because... They also got to keep fresh on things that they were learning, you know, from their first year geoscience courses. But it was fun because they got to engage with youth at the same time. So I found myself really enjoying that side of things. And then it wasn't until I went to the PDAC conference in Toronto and I met with a couple of people who worked with a mineral literacy organization called Mining Matters. And they induced me to this whole field of science communication, really. And they informed me that there was one person in Canada who was doing research on this type of thing. And she is now my current supervisor. So that was how I got introduced to her and this whole, you know, unique field of geoscience communication, really. It's so fascinating to me how the impact of our teachers at K through 12 and the memories that they imprint on us and the things that they do have such lasting impacts. And it's always inspiring because I feel like a lot of emphasis is normally put on the college level of research. And yeah, that's exactly where you can do a lot of these cool, like you were talking about exploration projects. You can spend a little bit more time that you can't do in K through 12, but K through 12 is just so essential to that workforce, that future geology community that sometimes we forget about it. And that is such a huge impact especially in America right now, the teaching community is having a lot of major issues with people and jobs and different things. But like, they're so essential to everything in society, especially geology. I couldn't agree more. And you're exactly right. Most people in geoscience have a story 
to do with a teacher and that being the thing that roped them into geoscience. In my opinion, like equipping teachers with the resources to teach geoscience is one of the biggest things that geoscience can do for itself. Oh, yeah. So let's talk a little bit more about science communication, but specifically what you're talking about here, which is geoscience communication. So what is it and how is it implemented in our society and at the academic level? Could you maybe speak a little bit more about its usefulness as a tool for dialogue about these things such as critical minerals and trying to reconcile the need to mine while also trying to be aware of the social, environmental, and political implications of the energy transition? Yeah, for sure. So first of all, with what is geoscience communication, I based my definition off what a lot of scholars in the science communication space have said. And honestly, those definitions vary. Some people like to start tying in their objectives with their communication as part of their definition. So they'll say, you know, to educate the public or something like that. So I just like to think of it as all the ways in which geoscience is communicated between experts and non-experts. And there's some discrepancies there. Some people will say that, you know, the communication between experts as well should count as part of that, but it takes on a different approach in my mind. And then when it comes to how geoscience communication can and is used in our society, there's a few different ways. So kind of on the more general public side, I think one of the most common ways that we hear about science and geoscience particularly is through the news. But often what I find is that in the news, when they talk about these things, they're very deficit oriented, but there's not really an opportunity to have a a strong conversation around it. It's more just telling us what it is and why they think it's important. There's also things like geoparks, which are a relatively new UNESCO site. Basically, these are sites of international geologic significance, and there seems to be more and more popping up. So they're really, in my opinion, they're a really great way to engage the public. Museums are another common one that we see here in the BC and in the Lower Mainland. When we get into the K-12 education side of things, the lines between, you know, science communication, informal education, as well as formal education all start to blur a little bit. But in my mind, Where geoscience communication comes in in that space, it's really through these outreach programs. So at least here in Canada, what I've seen is we have some not-for-profit organizations who their main mandate is to go to these schools or have schools come to them. And they talk to them about various geoscience concepts. And then we also have a lot of teacher professional development opportunities. So I consider that as part of geoscience communication because really... What we're doing is equipping educators with tactics that they can use for geoscience specifically. And a big thing with that is, you know, a lot of teachers don't have that background in geoscience. So there's an education component to it, as in we have to educate the teachers, but then it's also giving them strategies they can use to actually implement it and make it effective in their classrooms. And then, you know, also for K-12 students, I think you can start having the conversation about social media and how geoscience is communicated through that. And they're proving to be quite effective too. So in my mind, those are kind of the big areas where I see geoscience communication currently being used. So the second part of that question, so using geoscience as a tool for dialogue, as I was mentioning with the news, they're really deficit oriented, I find. So a lot of times they're going to use jargon and they'll say, 
that critical minerals are used for technology, but they don't really get the time just of how news is constructed to explain how critical minerals are going to be used for the green energy transition. Like we know that that's a a big conversation. Clearly, like your podcast has shown, it's a big conversation and really media doesn't provide that opportunity to have that really in-depth conversation. So in my mind, creating more opportunities for, you know, these more engaged interactions is going to be something really important for us to use. What I've also seen on like the not-for-profit organizations who are doing this kind of work, for example, an organization that I internshiped with, Mining Matters, they recently introduced a critical minerals activity. And a part of that was this roundtable discussion where basically you give the opportunity to the students to have these really in-depth conversations like around social, economic, and government's issues around critical minerals. And it looks at it from a positive lens, but it also looks at it with a critical lens, which I think is extremely important and something that we need to do to give a balanced understanding of what this future could look like. And then also one thing that I've seen is through university outreach, and it's one of the things I'm actually offering right now. Again, a sort of informal educational experience where, at least in my case, we have students come in. And it's a hands-on opportunity for students to look at various critical minerals. And sometimes that's all I want is for someone to have a positive memory about what we're talking about. You introduced me to the concept of mineral literacy, and I just thought that was just a really incredible thing. And I had heard of geoscience communication before, but mineral literacy is so fascinating because in Virginia, where I'm based out of in the United States, I used to look at these old books in the state and they're 40, 50 years old, black and white. And I told myself, how is it going to be useful to have this old outdated book to try to get new young geologists interested about our state's mineral resources? So, you know, I created a nonprofit here in Virginia to try to do that. And it was on the main premise. In the United States, most of the education that would happen at the K through 12 level came down to local rock and mineral clubs, basically just people that love gems and they would educate. But when I was introduced to you and I learned more about that in Canada, they have funded nonprofits that are dedicated and see the space to teach people because in the US, most of these mineral societies are older generations. They had did not fare well after COVID-19. And if the state's not going to educate and there's not much curriculum or materials to be provided for teachers, then what do you do? At this point in Virginia, I meet teachers all the time that are coming out to our geology events and they're a biology professor, they're a physics professor, they're a chemistry professor. So I was just really impressed at how the work that you've done and the work that's being done in Canada on these organizations, they're so essential. But in the United States, we're really falling behind in some regards. I mean, there are institutions like the American Geoscience Institute and others that put resources out. But to get it on the ground, to meet with teachers, to go into classrooms, AGI and USGS do not have the time to do that. And you really depend on local groups to do that. I couldn't agree more. And in Canada, for the most part, there's two major organizations that do this and they're constantly busy. The demand is through the roof, which again, just ties back to what we were talking about before, about how teachers really need support. And I think that's where these organizations have a really big opportunity and role in geoscience literacy. Well, hopefully we can learn from our Canadian allies on ways to do this. And I think there's a lot of growth here. And I am going to be writing an op-ed soon on workforce challenges. But unlike most of the authors and the writing that I see, They always emphasize we need more engineers, we need more 
technical metallurgist and all these different things. And I'm like, but you also need a K through 12 workforce that is prepared to talk about critical minerals in the context, as you were talking about, of more social, environmental, political context. Because these kids are willing to have these conversations. I've met some really bright students and they're capable of it. So you talk a little bit when we've had previous conversations about you have science communication, but then you also have a gap between science communication and the literature around it to the field of geoscience. So could you maybe explain that gap that we were talking about and what are you working on as far as your PhD and other thesis on trying to be a connective tissue or even establish a connective tissue between geoscience or geoscience communication? Yeah, for sure. So my research, it's looking at these things called the science communication models. And basically, these are ways that scholars have conceptualized how we approach communicating with publics on science. So Basically, what we first start with is what's called the deficit model. Basically, there were all these concerns about public scientific literacy. And the thought behind that was, if we give them knowledge, they're going to have more positive attitudes on science. The whole reasoning behind this, at least in the literature, is that an ignorant public shouldn't take part in decisions on politics and things like that. So if they had more information, then they're going to feel better and they're going to make better attitudes when it comes to political things. But this notion that knowledge equals positive attitudes has, for the most part, been disproven. Basically, from that, we get to the dialogue model. So this is more into the 80s and 90s. And what they're finding is that there was still low scientific literacy and there was still negative attitudes towards science that was happening, especially to do with all these like major crises that were happening and the public didn't know how to feel about it. So basically the dialogue model, it realizes that more information isn't going to work. We have to think about it in a different way. And so in my mind, one of the most critical findings that they found is that humans really were a construct of our values, our friends and family's values, our community's values. We have opinions on things and we have knowledge that we've formed on our own. So basically, we are the social world that we live in, right? And so the dialogue model values that. It starts to form more of a conversation around whatever science you're talking about. It also acknowledges that scientific knowledge isn't the only form of knowledge and that there can be other forms of knowledge, like indigenous knowledge, on these types of things as well. So that's kind of the dialogue model. And then when you get into the participatory model, really this model came about for a desire for more democratic science. So basically there were still all these continued controversies happening in the public eye. And so the participatory model said, okay, what's happening here? What's not working? And so really what we saw is in the deficit and dialogue model, all the power is with the scientists. It's usually the scientists who are leading these conversations it's often usually to their benefit. So they said, okay, let's give the power to the public and let them be the ones to initiate these conversations. And then it also engages multiple stakeholders, anyone who's involved in these. And basically it's, you know, this multi-way form of conversation where everyone gets a say, everyone's knowledge is equally. And what we see in reality with the participatory model, because a lot of times people will say, okay, that sounds great, but what does it actually look like in practice? Honestly, I think we're still figuring it out, but there's kind of four trends at least that I've been able to identify. So there's a trend towards decision-making, 
So these, I know in the States and in the EU, they have these consensus conferences where basically, you know, if there's a new technology or something coming in that the public might feel apprehensive about or something like that, they have these, like a big town hall meeting, I like to think of it, where public concerns can come to the table. Scientists or experts on these things also come in and it's just an open conversation about whatever wanted to be talked about. Then there's also... The citizen science side of things, which has become a very new and popular thing where basically everyday citizens get to be scientists and do research. And then there's also this kind of community engagement dimension as well, which, in my opinion, has a lot of potential for geoscience, especially when, you know, we're talking about mining companies who are going into a community and doing work in these communities. And how do we engage these communities in a really effective way while also meeting their needs as well. So that was a really broad overview of these models. But now linking that back to my research, often what we find is that the practice that we see in geoscience communication, it doesn't talk about this literature. And to me, that's an issue because a lot of this literature has been applied in practice and they've figured out you know, what works and what doesn't for each circumstance. So really what I want to do is start to think about what we're doing in geoscience communication in light of these models and then try and figure out, okay, which approaches are best for various circumstances, really. No, and I think that's essential because, I mean, when you're talking about communication, you want to do it the right way and you want to take in, you know, legacies of knowledge and things that we've learned over time and implement that. And I think it's fascinating that you bring up that that's possibly not being done in some of these conversations. So this wraps up part one of my conversation with Courtney. Join us for part two as we discuss specific methodologies and best practices in geoscience communication and learn more about the mineral literacy organizations Courtney is part of and the role they play as essential stakeholders in government and private sector dialogue around mining projects. Thank you for joining us on another episode of A Rock and a Hard Place. Be sure to follow me on LinkedIn and check out our website, Mineral Choices, for more content. If you would like to be a guest on our podcast or contribute to our website, then please reach out. We love hearing from you, so do get in touch. And until next time, keep on rocking.